Good morning. Um, I am Tamara Zafarik. I don't know if I need this for us, but um, this morning we have uh, Christian Madrid Estrada, right, um, from Española Pathways Shelter here to talk to us. Um, this morning we kind of talked about awe, but also about how we become very self-reflective, and I think in the last three years we've become very internal focused. Um, in the last three years, uh, they've gotten this shelter up and running, and I think our helpers have had to be outside focused, and we greatly appreciate that. Um, and so we've asked uh, Christian to come here today to talk to us a little bit about the shelter. Um, my understanding is in January, we're going to actually do a drive to the shelter as well. Um, but he's going to talk to us about what's going on now and then maybe ways that we can assist as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Christian for now, and we'll have some time for questions at the end. Sure. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, my name is Christian Madrid Estrada. I was born and raised in the Española Valley. Uh, myself, personally, uh, as a child, I did experience um, homelessness for a bit. Um, so it's always been something that's been near and dear to my heart, and we live in a community where, you know, we deal with a lot of hardships, a lot of intergenerational traumas, uh, and and a lot of students and, and children who face adverse childhood experiences that negatively impact their lives moving forward. Um, and a lot of those things culminate, unfortunately, into either mental health disorders or substance use disorders. Um, so historically, over the last, I would say, probably five decades or so, there was always efforts made to try and get a shelter going in the valley. Um, and there was always a lot of pushback, and it was never really able to materialize. Uh, so a few years ago, I used to work with United Way of Northern New Mexico with the Collective Impact Team along now State Representative Roger Montoya. Uh, that was one of the things that was identified as a critical need in the community. And our work through Collective Impact was to bring organizations together to convene local stakeholders and see what we can do in terms of actionable measured outcomes um, and support and kind of get those projects up off the ground and then kind of get them moving along. So the shelter was identified as a huge need uh, we spent a lot of time looking at different areas, learning about different types of shelters and what could be done to kind of get a shelter going. Uh, and we dealt with a lot of nimbyism. A lot of people were like, yes, we'd love to have a shelter, just not in my backyard. Um, they were saying, you know, like, yeah, it'd be great to have a shelter like 10 miles out of town. And it's like, well, the people that are experiencing chronic homelessness don't have access to viable transportation, so 10 miles out of town is not gonna work. They need to be in a place where it's easy to access resources and where service providers can have ease of access to them to be able to directly provide those comprehensive services that they so need. Um, and when we think of homelessness, right, homelessness is such a multifaceted, complex problem. Um, it deals with a multitude of factors, everything, like I mentioned earlier, from substance use disorders to mental health disorders. Um, you know, some people, even just throughout the pandemic, we saw that people were experiencing homelessness that, you know, were just laid off or were dealing with, you know, the economy that was struggling. Um, and we have had people at the shelter who, because of the cri of the, the shortage of housing and the cr and the housing crisis that we're in, work full time jobs but might not make enough money to actually afford a place to live. Um, as well as we, you know, see a lot of seniors who they get around eight hundred to nine hundred dollars on SSI, um, but the average price of a one bedroom because of the shortage of housing has ranged anywhere from $1,100 to $1,300, and they haven't been able to even afford a place. We don't have a nursing home, um, so that's another issue. So it's all these different factors, right, that um, 
compact to really aggravate the situation uh, and make it a lot more difficult for people to, that are experiencing chronic homelessness or even short-term homelessness to receive services. So in getting the shelter going, um, it was a long process. We brought together tons of organizations that were either providing direct services directly, like recovery services. Uh, we brought together the churches in our area, as well as state and, uh, state and local government agencies like the city and the county um, and the Mortgage Finance Authority in really addressing this critical need. So once it was identified, it was looking, about, looking around and seeing if we could find some type of funding to support this. Now, at the time, uh, State Representative Joseph Sanchez um, had a junior appropriation of $225,000, and that was the seed money that really helped us establish ourselves as an organization and kind of build the groundwork and the foundation for where we are today. Uh, so the Espanol, Bath Espanol Pathway Shelter is now, it's a low barrier shelter. That means that individuals are allowed to stay. They, we don't require proof of vaccination. We don't require uh, copies of IDs or anything like that, which, which, which know, plenty of shelters do, which is difficult because these individuals don't usually have those things on them. They either sell them, they get stolen, they lose them. It's kind of hard for them to keep track of all of these things. So individuals are allowed to stay at the shelter. If they come in drunk or high, that is fine. The, the two biggest rules that we have is there's absolutely no use allowed while in the shelter or on our property, and they have to behave while they're in the shelter. So we go through, as, when a guest comes in, we do an intake process, an assessment, we go through all their stuff, search it. Everything that they have on them gets locked up for the night. The things that they are allowed to take into their dorms include a book, their cell phone, maybe a charger or an extra blanket if they'd like. But other than that, everything gets put away. We do offer showers every night, laundry services, uh, dinner, obviously, every time when they come in. And then if they need any additional services like case management, um, that is allowed as well. Like So we work to schedule with them. So for this calendar, for this calendar year, by the end of this year, uh, we would have put 85 people into detox programs and 65 people into rehab programs. That includes in-state and out-of-state, so states like Texas, Colorado, and Arizona. And uh, what we do is we work with other agencies. Uh, if an individual comes in and they're saying, you know, I really want to get into a rehab, uh, I just don't want to get into a program here. We have found that the majority of, of the successes that we have are with individuals who are placed in an external program that is alien to them, uh, because there's a lot less local triggers to them that could affect their, their relapse. Um, so we'll work with agencies. If we have discretionary funding, we try to use it to either pay for a bus to get them there or to pay for the intake at that facility. Um, but we have had some really good success with that. Uh, and the shelter, in, in the amount of time that we've been around, has changed a lot. So it started off um, just as, and we'll, we'll go to that slide in one second. So. Um, when we first started off, identifying the building was huge. We found a commercial property uh, there on Riverside, which is just the main street in Española, 628 North Riverside. It used to be a Fox Chiropractic and an Express MVD. Um, so we identified that as the property, came in as tenants, did a ton of construction improvements, but in the meantime, while all that was being done, because it took about a year of construction to get going, we had, we had a need. It was cold in the winter, so we started an emergency warming uh, site. Uh, and services were provided there, such as meals, clothing, tents. Everything was was monitored as best as we could for the time. Um, but that was just the, the first stepping stone, really, that we needed to kind of get through in order to get to where we are. Um, then COVID hit, and that was a huge thing as well. Um, we were able to purchase an old motel through the use of CARES Act funding. So that came through the state, and then Santa Fe County was the vessel that that was purchased through. 
Um, that is now our transitional housing. So that, that provision is for individuals who have at least six months of verifiable recovery. And it's our transitional slash recovery housing model that we use that's had really good success. So that means that once those individuals come out of a program, whether that's a local program or a statewide program, or like I said, it could be from one of the other states that's referred over. We've had clients that have been um, court ordered either federally or through the state because we are accredited with the Department of Correction um, to receive clients. They come in, we work with them there on a more intimate level on getting employed, maintaining that employment, understanding where they are in their sobriety and maintaining that sobriety as well, and then work with them to make sure that all, obviously all their basic needs are met, access to nutrition, access to viable transportation. And currently, and it's the first time in our history that we've been able to say this, but 100% of all of our clients that are at our transitional housing are employed. They've been maintaining their employment throughout the, the longevity of their stay. They have their own transportation, whether that's through vehicles donated from community members um, or, or, or other, and they're all on track to graduate. So they're all employed, have their own transportation, and have been maintaining their sobriety, either through AA or NA meetings or, or other support groups or counselors. So that's been huge um, in the last uh, fiscal year that we had, which was June of last year, or July of last year through June of this year, we had 10 individuals that completely graduated out of that program. That means that that's 10 more people that are not experiencing chronic homelessness that have their own place to live, have their own transportation, are maintaining all of these wonderful vital necessities in order to ensure that they have a stable life. And so that kind of work is, you know, why we have the name Pathways where the shelter is to really deal with like the critical emergen emergency services that an individual is experiencing when when they're, when they're experiencing chronic homelessness, right? So it's really about getting that assessment done, seeing where that individual is, and trying to make sure that the services that we can provide are prescriptive to the needs of that individual, because it is different for everyone. Some people uh, might not have any substance use disorders or mental health disorders and might just be down on hard times. How can we help that person as opposed to this other person who might have years of exacerbated drug use, um, which might even contribute to some type of mental health disorder. Um, so it's really just about making sure that each individual is, each, each person that we serve is treated as a person as opposed to just a quantifiable metric, um, you know, that can be used for reporting and stuff like that. So one of the things that we've, we've really prided ourselves in is um, as a shelter really working with community you know, making sure that we have really strong community partnerships with not just, um, you know, churches, uh, but also with service providers directly because we know that as an organization, we're never going to be able to do it all, right? No organization is. So we might be really great at X, Y, Z, but then there might be an organization that can do A, B, and C way better than we can and, and might be doing it in a way that we're not, right? So it's really looking and, and taking these best practices, seeing how we can implement it into our work and our program and there are things that um, some agencies do that we will never be able to do. So it's looking about making sure that we can have a partnership where that service can be provided through collaboration to the clients that we serve so that there's as many overlapping layers of support to really ensure a comprehensive care plan for all of the people that we serve. And in doing so, have had such great success. So for this year, like I said, making sure that 65 people got into rehab and like th that's huge, that's a huge undertaking, 85 people into detox programs. Um, by the end of this year, we'll be at 17,000 meals served for this calendar year, uh, which is huge, because we obviously that's a huge need that goes alongside um, the clients that we serve, and as well as that, 
probably about right around 3,000 showers that would have been provided for this year as well, um, and right around 2,700 um, loads of laundry provided to the clients, um, which is huge. Dignity through hygiene for individuals who are suffering with chronic homelessness is huge. Imagine trying to get a job interview, not having a place to stay, not even being able to shower or, or get a clean set of clothes. That makes a big difference in some people's life. Um, and we try to keep a pantry of, of as many things as possible, everything from um, hygiene materials, not just uh, like general like toothbrushes, toothpaste, uh, shampoos, all that stuff, that's great. Also feminine hygiene products, which are really hard for, for females experiencing chronic homelessness, having access to those. Uh, for families, diapers, access to formula uh, and baby food, clothes. We try to keep as, as well a stock of clothing pantries as we can, especially now in the winter with jackets and stuff like that. Uh, we have been getting a good amount of donations for women's clothes, but one of the things that we really need is men's clothes um, because it's disproportionately represented the amount of men that, that are experiencing homelessness as opposed to women. So for every woman that we serve, that we see in the shelter on any given night, there's usually, it's like a two to three, it's two to three men that we see per woman, but actually experiencing homelessness, it ranges sometimes, it could be one to five, one to six, and in some areas even higher. So this talks a little bit about the services that we provide. Like I said, we do provide meals, obviously this, the, the shelter itself, all of the different services that, that we provide culminate in, in, in the shelter and kind of where we're wanting to kind of move with our services. Currently, we're trying to partner with an agency that has um, a clinical practice um, that does case management. So looking and seeing how can we bring in those services to the shelter setting um, in a way where like they can bill for Medicaid and bill insurances that we cannot um, and be able to provide more of a comprehensive care in terms of that for the clients as well. This talks a little bit about our transitional housing facility, like I said. Um, we got this through CARES Act funding, um, and we've been at capacity ever since we started, and we have a huge waiting list. And now one of the things that we're looking at, we put together a special committee that includes not just some of the clients that we served and have been successful in our program, um, but vested community members to talk about, you know, we have this property. Is there any way that we can expand our footprint to be able to serve more clients? There are limitations that we have just based off of ordinances and what our property allows, but really looking at envisioning what we could do with the larger space uh, and the potentials for that are great because we know that it's a model that's working right now with the successes that we have um, and looking to see if we can increase our capacity is kind of one of the big things that we're looking at for this next year and that's probably something that would be phased out over the next couple of years. Again, this touches on some of the accomplishments that I mentioned earlier. And I think that that's probably the, pretty close to the end of the slide here. This is, we're coming up to the, the last few slides, but um, some of the things that we've experienced um, that have been difficult is the work that we do as frontline workers is such a high stress job, right? It can be pretty depressing seeing the things that we see, dealing with the things that we deal with. All of our staff is trained in you know, handling de-escalation of, of conflicts and things like that, CPR, Narcan administration, all of those great things. Um, but to have to save people's lives, right, um, as a frontline worker, bringing somebody back when they're ODing, 
a lot of that stuff is pretty traumatic, right? The average person doesn't see that on a regular basis. Um, so what we found is like for us, making sure that we can ensure access to counselors or therapists for staff has been huge because it's a job that like the turnover rate is so high, right? Nobody wants to work overnights, especially, you know, 12 hour shifts. Um, so that's one of the things that we've dealt with. We're like the staff that we keep, that we can keep for longer than six months. We got to hold on to them like gold because it, it's, such a, it's such a high stress job that's pretty demanding, um, but it's really good work and it can be some of the most meaningful and impactful work that you do in your entire life. Um, one of the things that I want to just add to this um, that I don't think I included in the slides, but in working with our recovery programs, one of the things that we like to do is ensure that there is as warm a handoff as possible with individuals coming out of the recovery programs into our transitional housing. And even if they don't come directly into our transitional housing, but they're coming into our community, how we can continue to assist. So graduates that came out of recovery programs this year, we employed about six of them directly as shelter staff. And then they were able to transition into other jobs as well. At, our, at the property that we have, um, it's below us, below is the shelter, obviously in the back. Above us, there's a Goodwill. Then there's a nonprofit wellness center in the middle where they do like dance classes and stuff like that. And then at the far end, our newest tenant just moved in, which is the Food Depot. So our entire property is nonprofit. And we're looking to see how we can continue to ensure that our mission and our vision kind of goes throughout all of our assets, right? So with the Food Depot coming in, looking to partner with, a, with them on a project called Casita de Comida, which is a free grocery store essentially for the whole community. Uh, and looking how we can really be strong partners. We have had um, previous guests of ours at the shelter that have been employed at Goodwill and wanting to kind of continue that as a tradition through all of our nonprofits that we have um, to ensure that there's pipelines, right? And there's places where these individuals who are coming out of this pro are coming out of these programs can actually find employment, which is extremely difficult to do, especially if you have criminal history, like a lot of our a lot of the people that we serve do. Um, but just making sure that they have access to opportunities is so huge. A lot of the times, what these people need is just a chance, right, for somebody to believe in them, and, and to really just say, okay, like I'm I'm trusting you. This is what you're going to be doing. Let's see how it goes. And sometimes these people flourish and thrive. A lot of them have such amazing skills. A lot of them have really great artistic skills. But not having the avenues um, in which to use those has been really, I think, difficult for a lot of them. So one of the things that we did, which we found, we found great success, tremendous success in this year, is we did like a little landscaping pilot project, essentially. And we had about 15 individuals come together and they helped landscape the entire property. And the pride that they got from that, like historically it's always been difficult with individuals dealing with chronic homelessness, they bring a lot of trash, right? They'll load up carts, take them to wherever they're staying, they'll leave them, they don't want them anymore, they'll start to hoard stuff. And one of the things that we saw is through that program, the pride that they had and like, wow, we kept this place clean, look at what it's looking like, really helped cut down on the overall littering um, and, and kind of um, hoarding, for lack of a better term. But yeah, I mean, like now we'll see people, if somebody tries to bring stuff and just like leave a mess, the rest of the clients will be like, you got to clean that up. Like, <laughs> so really seeing that pride that they have and that sense of ownership is really, that's been one of the things that's like really remarkable. So looking at how we can continue to do things like that that are more holistic and 
therapeutic in a sense, right? Whether that's like something as as a as simple as a mural project or landscaping, but really looking at these individuals and really wanting to provide those holistic therapies um, is something that we're looking forward to in this next year. So plans for, again, mural project, continued landscaping, some type of community garden are all things that we wanna do to really help these individuals feel more invested and active and engaged as opposed to just providing services, right? In a clinical level, all that stuff is gonna be there and all of that's great, but it's also about identifying what the root causation is for, like, for why these individuals are in the position that they're in and how we can continue to address that. This talks, this actually just demonstrates kind of the vision that we have. So the motel is in this L shape um, as it's shown up, up there. Uh, currently we have 14 units. Um, and this is kind of what we wanna reimagine it as. So as you can see, it has solar all above the top. So we wanna be, um, as like as eco-friendly as possible as we can with this renovation. Obviously, the the most um, the most effective way of of staying clean and renewable is just by upcycling, right? We don't want to have to demolish and build all brand new, but if we can take what's existing and remodel it in a way that that uh, allows us to be a lot more carbon neutral, that's what we want to do. So water catchment, solar, community gardens are all the things that we want to do. Um, to ensure that not only are we being able to provide a higher quality of care and a, a higher quality space for the clients that we serve, um, but also doing it in as environmentally friendly a way as possible. And I'm just gonna real quick, yeah. So this uh, is a slide that shows a list of all of the community partners. Um, there are some missing, <laughs> we would not have enough space to list them all, but um, it's through contributions from these agencies and from committed and devoted community members that really make a difference and allow us to do the work that we do. Um, and we're looking to just every year, just bigger and better um, and to continue providing these critical services because there's so much need. Um, but we're open to anything, right? So individuals want to vo volunteer, there's volunteer opportunities. Um, if they want to donate, you know, any of the materials that we use on a regular basis, so food, clothing, things like that, monetary donations are, are, are great as well, those go through um, they can be made directly to us, just denote what you would like it to be used for, um, and it'll be allocated for that purpose. Um, and donations can also be made on our website, so that's just www.espanolapathwayshelter.org. So, yeah, any questions? Any questions? If we do want to donate like toothpaste or something for women or whatever, do we just drop it off? We come up there and drop it off at your at your place, or do we? Yeah, tell yeah. Me. I mean, you can. Uh, but if if like for example, if the church wanted to do a drive and wanted to collect stuff here, um, then we could coordinate. If if no one's available to take it down, we could coordinate bringing somebody up here to grab everything and take it down. Um, so the shelter is open right now every night uh, for overnights from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. during uh, Monday through Friday, uh, pretty ap like regular business hours, um, we're usually there during the day. So if you want to drop off stuff during then, you can. I'll, I will give my card out so you guys have access to just reach out to me directly. Um, if you are planning a donation and, and want to drop it off, that way we can make sure that somebody's there to meet you and be able to take that stuff inside. 
and I think our social justice committee is going to do a drive in January so that we'll collect here, but that's one time, so all year. <laughs> I'm sure they don't need things just in January. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, yeah, I was, I was curious about the balance in terms of um, staff and clients between the Pathway Shelter and the, and the Pathway Village. Yeah, so um, we have a lot more staff at the, at the shelter um, because for every night that we do overnights, we need to have at least two staff. So right now we have seven direct care staff that work throughout the week um, and they alternate. So they'll be like one day on, one day off, and they'll go like that for three days or they'll have three days on and then they'll have a two day break in between. Um, and for the, for the village, we have one on-site safety captain that actually lives there. Um, and then we have our case manager that works there directly. Uh, and then they get support from, um, from the shelter, obviously. Uh, and then the shelter, uh, our case manager is transitioning out. She got a wonderful position at, at, at the state. Um, so that's why we're working with, uh, with these clinicians to see about bringing in those and, and bringing in more of a, I guess a formalized service of case management that kind of holds the same values and continues to do the same work that we're doing, but that is actually able to bill for Medicaid and things like that, which make a huge difference because that's something that historically we haven't been able to do. What is the limit on the number of people that can stay in the shelter each night? So we have a, a provision, we have space for about 12 men and 12 women and up to two families if needed. We do have one full family room uh, which is pretty modular, so it can be um, rearranged to whatever the needs of that prescriptive family are. So if they come in with a toddler and they say, we just need the crib and the changing table, great. Everything else we take out, we store to ensure that they have just what they need, there's no clutter, and that it's a safe space. And that is separate from the men's dorm and the women's dorm. Um, and we have, like the nights that we have been at capacity, we have not been able to, we, I mean, we've had to turn people away, which is unfortunate because it is first come, first serve. Um, and we're really working with and, and continuing to try to have this conversation with the fire department of like, if it's an emergency, like are we allowed to, to set up some extra bunks? Like can we put people on the floor? Um, so far the answer has been no, which totally understandable. There's ordinances and stuff like that. Um, but really wanting to figure out like, we know that the number of people that we serve is so much higher. So how can we ensure that all of those individuals have access to shelter? Well, thank you so much. <laughs> this has actually been very eye-opening for myself. Um, I, I don't know, if, you know, for anyone who knows anyone that works at Lanol, if you do donations, Lanol will actually do kind of a 50% extra on that if you do it through their website too versus um, other sources. So just as a FYI. Um, but thank you so much. Like I said, we uh, we do plan to do some more for the shelter, particularly in January, but throughout the year we'll try and recall that as well, and um, we may have you back if that's okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having us. Um, like I said, we do have volunteer opportunities available as well, things as simple as like going by during the day and just helping put together excuse me, snack packs and things like that, because um, on any given day we'll, we'll go through about 40 to 80. Um, and it's always going to be a need, right? Nutrition and access to nutrition is always going to be there. Um, so we want to just continue doing the work that we do. We want to thank you guys for giving us the time to come out and present to you guys. Like I said, I'm going to give you guys my card. If you guys have any questions, if you guys have any comments, um, anything at all, just reach out to us. We're more than happy to answer and clarify anything. 
Um, or if you guys ever want to just check out this space as a church, um, we could set up a site to where you guys can go see it in person and kind of see like where it is that we do the work that we do uh, and maybe answer any more questions in depth that you might have at that time. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, of course.